Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to One Brand with Rory Sutherland, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. And today we're talking about how to make your brand stand out and how to establish trust. And the perfect guest to join us to discuss this and more uh, is Mark Evans, who's Managing Director of Marketing and Digital for Direct Line. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rory. Very flattered to be here. Thank you. Hi, oh, it's a pleasure. Um, you've just launched a new series of ads. So there's no more Winston Wolf, no more Harvey Keitel. Take us through the new campaign and the thought process behind it. Yeah, well, as you say, it's a major transition moment and uh, frankly, a bit of a gulp moment because we've had enormous success with Winston Wolf uh, and the Fixer campaign. Uh, three gold IPA effectiveness awards, uh, multiple other awards, and, and more importantly, a huge turnaround in the performance of a brand that was struggling. Uh, but yes, in the last few days, we have moved on substantially from that and um, launched the We're On It campaign. Uh, and um, so far, so good. It's kind of his early days, but it's very uh, nice that Mark Ritson has said some really positive words, even in the first few days. So hopefully that counts for something too. But yeah, it's, it's a transition point and we have upped our game. So it's still around fixing. And what's quite interesting, I'm sure we'll come on to it, is that without changing the agency or the strategy or any senior people on the client side, we've moved a really successful campaign on whilst it's still in its pomp. Uh, but nonetheless, we wanted to up our game. And this is the next level of fixing, even more iconic, even more uh, standout, I would argue, even more enjoyable, and really ups our game to really get across this notion that we are the ultimate fixers of insurance, where frankly, many insurers will let you down. I think it has something in common with, you know, one of the most successful and most loved campaigns. And this is both the new version and the old version, what it retains. Uh, and I'm referring to the uh, the Boff and Rowan Atkinson Barclaycard campaign, is that it shows, each advertisement shows a product benefit um, very, very clearly and shows essentially what might be a USP, but it does it by essentially adding a huge amount of additional emotional value, uh, famous characters, celebrity uh, to the message. And I think what's lovely about that and what I always loved about the Barclay Card campaign is the extent to which it did double duty. So it did the informational job of explaining what makes you different and you know what you might call that gossamer thread of rational reasoning. But around it, there's a fantastic degree of kind of uh, razzmatazz and celebrity and fame, 
which I think is still a necessary. I think I think there's a danger that advertising has become, particularly in the digital realm, dangerously utilitarian. A bunch of people have just said it's all about conveying this completely rational message. And the pressure to do that, of course, in something like insurance, when you're surrounded by highly rationalistic people with a financial mindset, must be you know immensely higher than it might be if you're in, let's say, Unilever or somewhere with a marketing culture. Can you explain how, how you managed to, uh, to actually make that case? Because it can't be easy. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned a few things there. I suppose the the first thing is um, I, I can't go a moment longer without giving enormous amounts of credit where it's due, uh, both to Saatchi's, who have done it again, that hair standing up on the back of your neck moment when they present really, really breakthrough work, and also to, to Kirsty Hogan, Wendy Moores and Kerry Chilvers, um, who are the, the dream team that have pulled all of this off. Um, uh, so you know, credit credit where it's due. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it, it, and it was very challenging back in the day with the Fixer campaign, because I suppose we were just really in the process of establishing our credentials as a proper heavyweight marketing function. Because the, the job of convincing, particularly in financial services, convincing an organization that marketing is anything other than coloring in is never done. And even though I would say we've got world-class science um, uh, all the way through, that, that job is, is, is literally never done. But back to your point about what makes great advertising, you, you're absolutely right. There's a ton of dross out there. But both with the Fixer campaign and with We're On It, it, it does do that double duty, which is, yes, of course, it's well-branded, very respectful of brand assets, work with Ehrenberg Bass towards that. And it, yes, it, uh, it stands out and it communicates something. I think that's the Unilever's ABC sort of mnemonic there. But, but it does so much more than that. But it does have a clear product benefit. It's that the story of the benefit is interwoven. Um, and it, so it is a recovery. It is a salvage. It is what we do. We get people's lives on track when stuff goes wrong, but it's done in, a, in, a, in an entertaining and cut through way. So I think, you know, uh, FMCG talk about the, the rational and emotional benefits for us. It's, it's similar in that we've got to communicate a bit of a not, not necessarily dull, but, you know, people don't really want to think about stuff going wrong. So we've got to communicate that message and we've got to do it in an entertaining way. And so the leverage of uh, characters um, and, and heroes and so on is quite important to get across both of those aspects. Uh, but, and, and, you know, twice up now, I think we've, we've really found a formula that, uh, that does both those jobs, as you say. Because just to explain to the audience, I mean, if you're uh, advertising for direct line, your advertising has to work a bit harder than it does for most insurance brands. The reason being that direct line doesn't appear on intermediary comparison websites. Now, there's obviously a financial gain to you in having customers go direct, which I hope funds to a degree, a bit of extra advertising. It should certainly should do. But it means the advertising has to do, in a sense, more work than usual because not only does it have to make the brand an acceptable choice when it's presented to you by a, a website, it actually has to make you go there first. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, in many ways, a much, much harder task. You're right. I mean, one of the key issues in insurance is that over a period of time and um, before and through and after the financial crisis, insurance had lost its way. It became heavily commoditized uh, and had lost sight of its raison d'etre, which is, you know, it is there to put things right when they go wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we do have to do that, that extra job because for many people, frankly, they just don't really get its, its significance and importance. Uh, maybe they've not got as much stuff to insure or they've not had 
bad experiences in life or bad experiences with insurers. And so they literally look for the cheapest. And it seems crazy that in such an important thing in people's lives, they refer to what cuddly toy they're getting as the most important uh, consideration. Uh, but, but thankfully, many people... That was a very pointed dig, but I'll, I'll, I'll let that pass. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not criticising the price comparison websites for a moment. I'm just thinking it's a shame and indeed a tragedy in some cases that people don't know what they're buying. Uh, and it will let them down and make a bad situation even worse when it comes. Interestingly, I'm terrified by this because I think what comparison websites are doing is they're not comparison websites, they're price comparison websites. And they're educating the populace to treat the product as a complete commodity, which should simply be bought as cheaply as possible. Now, if you consider just by analogy, um, and I was talking to Vint Cerf, who's one of the sort of fathers of the internet and now works at Google a couple of days ago. And he was also conscious of this problem, which is that essentially, if you just imagine flight comparison websites, okay, if you introduced an airline that was much, much better, but 20% more expensive, there's a risk that once you go to a comparison website and everything's ranked with the cheapest first, that you'll get to sort of the first seven pages will be Ryanair and you won't even be introduced to this airline, which might be 50% better and 20% more expensive. And so the extent to which it ridiculously privileges one thing, low cost, uh, in the consumer decision-making journey without actually allowing consumers to make trade-offs between price and quality strikes me as terrifying because it's essentially a commodifying race to the bottom. I'm going to flip that all entirely on its head to say that uh, for, for direct line, there is, uh, there's some sort of golden economics here, which is that um, if, if, if enough people get that insurance is important and we can invest in the advertising, as you say, but also the proposition. So we have many market leading propositions in our service delivery. Um, then uh, that actually is offset by the fact that we're not paying a commission to the aggregator then we can cut our own uh, path, which is to attract the people who get it. And actually surprisingly price competitive because we don't pay that aggregated commission. And then the dot, dot, dot is with a direct relationship, we can then do much more in terms of personalization, added value, understanding our customers. And the, the inherent benefit of a direct relationship means that even though it's about the same to acquire as a price comparison website, people stay longer, they uh, they uh, buy a bit more, uh, and they're, they're they're pretty good. You know, people who look after their stuff, so they maybe claim a tiny bit less. And the net of that is actually there's a really still a very strong economic model, but only 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 with an incredibly resonant brand, which is why this advertising and the previous advertising needs to have big brand status to be seen as one of the UK super brands and to have an inherent confidence. You know, not arrogance, but to have a confidence so that people can can believe this, you know, this is this is the good stuff. This stands apart from all that other stuff where all I can see is the price comparison. I think you have achieved that, and it looks like you've achieved it twice, which is really remarkable. And and as I was saying, kudos to Saatchi's, who I think actually instigated the idea for a new campaign in part. Um, kudos to you for not holding a repitch, as might have happened, uh, whenever the creative route changes. So I think that that's something uh, coming from the uh, the agency side. I, I really appreciate, but also I mean double kudos to you in that you've been in the job since 2012, and that's an extraordinary longevity. Now 
hopefully what that means is that you've been there long enough to establish your credentials where your more rationalistic colleagues will take what you say on trust um, rather than treating you as kind of the, uh, you know, a rather dangerous colouring in person with an exciting crayon collection. Um, do you find that after, after this period of time you have achieved that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think tenure is important. And that's one of the issues for many CMOs is that they never really get to the good stuff. They get caught in that sort of year one or two survivalism where you pull the short term levers to try and make a big impact quickly and, and don't get to the, the longer levers that take a bit of time to gestate. The, the other thing is that, that Kerry, who's brand, Brands Director, um, we've been working together for four, eight years now. Um, and, and again, so the longevity of a few heavy hitters in the organisation has helped a lot. Uh, in, in terms of Saatchi's, well, you know, when, when they set out to say nothing is impossible, they set a high bar. Uh, and we do also uh, because we have a, one of our founding values is to aim higher. And so what that leads to, I mean, never, uh, it may not always be sedate, but uh, and because there's a bit of rub, you know, you need a bit of dynamic tension. But that leads to a, a degree of aspiration, which would cause us to challenge ourselves on Moving on, even from a campaign that has been described by some as the relaunch of the decade, as in the last decade, but but it sort of comes a little bit from paranoia, if I'm being completely honest. So uh, we had a sports psychologist who came in a couple of years ago, and he said, you're, you're most vulnerable when you're winning for the simple reason that performance can continue to improve, actually get better, even though the cracks are emerging. And by the time those cracks, uh, crevices or canyons it's too late and it, and it all falls apart. And there are many cases where good sports teams implode very, very quickly. And so it leads to a belief that there's no such thing as best. There's always better. And therefore, let's challenge ourselves to move on. And we, we wanted to go even harder. And it does come from confidence that we built in ourselves and from trust in the organization, but we wanted to go harder. But, but, but the job of convincing an organization that marketing is anything other than the colouring department is is never done. Just to tell a very short story, uh, a graduate came in uh, to the marketing function on their second rotation, having been in procurement. I, I meet everybody who joins the team just to say hello and be nice and welcoming. And I asked the question, how does it feel to come into marketing? And they said, well, to be honest with you, to be really honest, when I found out, I was really nervous because I was rubbish at drawing at school. And, uh, you know, I just sort of split my sides with, with laughter because, because, you know, it was always, it seems like a, uh, a crazy thing to say, but, but of course, um, you know, that, that, that is a common perception and, you know, the, the, the chap, a very smart chap did a really good recovery. I've been amazingly impressed at how data-driven and analytical it is in reality. Uh, it was, you know, it's a bit, bit late as I say, but, 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 but nonetheless, uh, so the job is never done and, uh, thankfully, I've had uh, worked for two CEOs, Paul Geddes, who was very marketing literate um, and accepting and trusting and gave us the space and uh, good grace to, to get on with stuff. And, and now Penny James, who is, by her own admission, not at all a marketer, but a great listener, very empowering, uh, keen to understand and support. And, you know, quite the antithesis of many uh, many CEOs. I was gonna, I was nearly going to mention some traits of typical CEOs, but we can probably all guess those. But she's she's almost the antithesis of that. And so again, we've got that sort of nurturing environment, which I think you need when you're really trying to push frontiers. This is very interesting because 
Something that terrifies me is I realized that, you know, one of the largest changes, which is generally not mentioned, everybody talks a great deal about digital and so forth. But one of the huge changes is there's an enormous difference in the type of company that advertises now versus 1988. I came into the industry in 1988. Two thirds of advertising was for packaged goods. And with packaged goods, you tend to have a pretty large marketing culture within the company, not least because marketing spend represents a huge part of uh, the overall business. And of course, that's completely changed. It's, it's probably a quarter of advertising spend is packaged goods. And the remaining three quarters is often insurance comparison websites, mobile phone networks, mobile phone handsets. It's often companies which, first of all, uh, in many cases, didn't even exist in 1988. You know, the sectors are completely new, but they have much, much less of a marketing friendly culture, typically, because the board culture tends to be dominated by either, either financial or engineering thinking um, or economic thinking, highly rationalist thinking. And so the job of the market has been made much, much more difficult. Uh, for that reason as well, I think. And in an insurance company in particular, where I suppose you have the actuarial mindset predominates, the danger where if you take that economic view of business, you'll see marketing as a cost, not as a source of value creation. Um, it, you know, their, their model of the world is much more likely to see marketing as an optional extra, that the value is inherent in a product and then marketing might add a little bit to it perhaps. I don't think that they see that marketing is actually intrinsic to value creation, because until you've worked out how to sell, you haven't got a worthwhile product at all. Yeah, um, I, I've got the, the the very best example I've got of an organisation um, not valuing the role of marketing uh, was I, I know the CMO of Hayes, Hayes, you know, Hayes Recruitment and so on. And he said when he pitched up, this was a decade ago in fairness, but when he pitched up, marketing showed up on the balance sheet as stationary printing and marketing uh, and so it really it really knew its it really knew its place in that in that context but but I, I mean I think you need three things to get through that environment you describe um, of a very a hyper rational very analytical very commercial very financial uh, context that is financial services so I think I, I think the first thing is you've got to show up from a commerciality point of view so we built a lot of science we're very heavy on econometrics another shout out to Carl Bratton I think is probably the best economy, um, marketing econometrician um, in the land. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so we have the science infrastructure and that means that we can show the short and long-term returns, uh, the multipliers, um, zero-based budgeting, et cetera. And so we've, we've talked a lot externally about some of the capability we've built from a marketing effectiveness. I think Ritson actually described us as a team of flying effectiveness monkeys, which is very flattering, although I think the origin of the concept flying monkeys is based in uh, those that follow narcissistic psychopaths. So probably shouldn't dwell on that too much. <laughs> uh, but the, so that's, the, that's, that's thing number one, commerciality. The second thing is resilience because it, it's, it's a groundhog day. So we do a check-in session or a deep dive around our effectiveness capability with every single non-exec uh, that, that joins. Um, we, we don't go to the board and show our advertising except on a very rare occasion, usually after the fact. I always say, if you're very proud of your advertising, show it to your mum, not to the board, because you get you reinforce the stereotype. And then the third thing you need, genuinely, is a bit of luck. And okay, maybe you make some of your luck. But for example, one of the reasons that we got the Harvey Keitel campaign through the board was that a couple of them were mid-box set on Breaking Bad. So they kind of 
absolutely got the genre of dark uh, gangster humor. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, you know, a bit of luck to have an agency like Saatchi. Um, there's any number of reasons. They might have had an off day in the chemistry session and uh, Paul Silburn, um sadly passed away now, may, may not have had that moment of creative genius to say, well, surely insurance is just like being, um, you know, Winston Wolfe when he cleaned Marvin's brains off the back of the Chevy back in Pulp Fiction. You know, that you'd need a bit of luck, but you've got to set the context for that luck to come. I think there's almost a rule in great advertising campaigns that if there isn't some sort of logical disconnect, in other words, if you're not going in to present them with some sense of, oh my God, they're bound to raise the question, e.g., what percentage of the population have watched Pulp Fiction? What's the recognition rate for Harvey Keitel? And is it really appropriate to use a gangster as a spokesman? Yes. Um, <laughs> You also have an advantage, I think, in that Harvey genuinely put something into each piece. He was not phoning these in, was he? He clearly loved doing the work. Very, very much so. So I, I think you're right that, uh, well, yeah, yeah. There's a bit of a backstory, which, which is that he was involved in the, putting the meat on the bones of that character. So he was very, um, very much in love with that character. And I think liked the idea of doing it, you know, that, as you can imagine, there's all sorts of things that need to happen in the back and from background from a commercial rights perspective. But he, he was very much um, 100% sure that it needs to be authentic and insistent that there were some subtleties that had to be adhered to. Uh, so that, that, you know, that the names that we used were the East Coast, West Coast, um, things that he wouldn't, wouldn't do. We even had the idea for a red bow tie, you know, distinctive brand asset, red bow tie. Absolutely not. There is no way that Winston Wolfe would have worn a red bow tie. So, so very much he was into the character and we had a great relationship and, um, you know, we, we thank Harvey Keitel enormously. Um, back to your point about Pulp Fiction, we did worry that many of our target audience will have never seen the film. Um, we needn't have because with Sopranos and Goodfellas and many other sort of um, uh, much content of that genre meant that people understood the, the premise of a fixer. And even if people had not seen Harvey Keitel as Winston Wolfe in action, in research with all age groups, he was the quote unquote daddy of fixers. So even though he was cleaning up brains from an accidental shooting in a, in a Chevy, that what he did, the elegant uh, removal of nasty problems is the perfect metaphor for our intent. So back to your point of you need a bit of disconnect or discombobulation to break through. We had that and we have that again. You know, the, the incongruity means it stands out and then you obviously have to work very hard to make that an established memory structure in people's head by repeat. But I think, you know, this is what makes for entertainment, the, the, un, the unusual, the unexpected, um, the, the things that do slightly disconnect is what makes the brain pay attention in the first place. No, I think, it, I think it's a brilliant case study because I think there might be a ten, tendency among the ad industry to think that adherence to the kind of Byron Sharp Ritson school is creatively limiting. And I think actually, once you understand the emphasis they place on distinctiveness, it's, it's quite the opposite, in fact. Yeah, indeed. And um, the, the, obviously, they, I think they agree far more than they sort of... Uh, yes, I, I agree with that. <laughs> except. Um, uh, but it's lovely to see the tete-a-tete, uh, you know, and the, the competitive rivalry. But no, I mean, I, I guess we're sort of avid followers of both, in fact. So we, we are... Uh, one of the sponsors of Berenberg Bass, and we've worked with them for a few years. The best boss I ever had, a chap called Bruce McColl, is now a director of Berenberg Bass, and he sort of made me really much more curious about what they could bring. Uh, we worked with Jenny Romniak in terms of uh, how do we really nail our distinctive brand assets through this transition period? 
And so I think, yes, distinctive and differentiation, I do believe, is the answer where they can complement. And the sweet spot between the two is hopefully what we found, because we are talking about insurance services. You know, what happens when your car is stolen or damaged or people, you've got water coming through your pipes or people have burgled your house? Um, You know, we talk about product features, uh, but we do it in a very distinctive way. And so, you know, the obvious answer is it's an and, different and distinct. And you also, interestingly, do TV B2B advertising, don't you, which is uh, highly unusual. Yeah, well, um, actually, for the first time, that's one of the transition points in this campaign is that it all comes from one house. So we have a um, a direct line for business uh, sub-brand, if you like, and now we're bringing them all together. And and it just portrays different scenarios. Nominally, each of our three lead brand adverts point to to car, to home and to business. Uh, And then the the really heavy listing product stuff at the the time of recording this podcast hasn't actually been unleashed. That comes very soon and it it all gets better, far better uh, from my point of view in terms of a a fully integrated campaign. But but the, the the reason being that it does all integrate is that many B2B customers, they're small enterprises and they're pretty close to B2C in fairness. This is not sort of gargantuan organizations. Um, that's a completely separate part of our business. Direct line for, for business and direct line for customers are kind of interchangeable. And uh, it's all part of a sort of, you know, a, a, a share of wallet uh, approach. One thing that interests me, you, you mentioned that story of someone turning up in the marketing department and saying I was terrible at art at school. And this is something that increasingly terrifies me, which is the extent to which uh, the only time I've ever seen Jeremy Bullmore get really angry is when I once in his presence used the phrase Marcons. And Jeremy, quite rightly, and I realised, you know, a few years later exactly why it made him so angry, uh, but, but he actually said that Marcoms is a phrase should be banned because the conflation of marketing with communication, which has become generally widespread, is extraordinarily dangerous to marketing. Because in any organisation where communication isn't a huge part of the budget, and that would be you know, very, very large, very important businesses, don't spend a huge amount on bought media, well, then effectively, it will demote marketing to effect an internal service function rather than a strategic function. And so having been surprised at first when he was so angry, I now completely understand it. You, you seem to have avoided that completely in your organisation, which for which credit. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, through time, yes. I, I, the first 10 years of my career was in Mars, where it was one of those organizations that inherently got it. It was built on brands and marketing was a strategic function. Senior marketers were P&L owners and went on to become the business unit CEOs and so on. Uh, so so that, that's what I'd come to expect in my first 10 years. And then everywhere I've been since, subsequently, it's been sort of the opposite. Uh, and it took some time through, uh, through the eight years at Direct Line to get there. Um, but over the couple of years, a, key, a few key things happened. So folding in the insight function, folding in the effectiveness function, growing the digital marketing team from within so that it becomes a composite uh, function. Uh, so a full service marketing function, as I sometimes call it, means that you've got all the different bits of artillery to fight some of those battles. Battle sounds a bit sort of aggressive, but you know, make, make people understand the value out of marketing and delivering the strategic objectives of the organization you know, positioning itself right at, heart, at the heart of the, some of the crunchier business problems that the organization has got, rather than that sort of the last, you know, the last yard or the last, um, you know, the last dollop on top to, to, to color in, frankly. Um, but, it, but it is hard, hard fought because the many people in financial services have 
never seen it and credit to penny she'd never seen it before but gets it now and is very appreciative but it's you know there is a bit of an acceptance that that there's uh you know there's a, it's a, it's art as much as science how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It, it, it is interesting because, of course, if you think about it, there are large swathes of business which would include logistics, finance, etc., which are what you might call, it's all about the creation of certainty. Hmm. And when you move into marketing, HR would be similar, I imagine. You move into a completely different realm where it's it, it, it's a complex environment, not a complicated one. And where, as I always said, look, you know, you know, most people in business are looking for a mechanism that gives them a single right answer to a question. Now, in marketing, for example, there isn't. I said in a, in a complex system, um, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea and so on. That most people are trying to use habits of thought in business which derive at the single optimal answer. And I think in marketing, it isn't an optimization problem. And I think that throws many people because the mental tools required. That doesn't mean, by the way, it's not scientific. I make a very important stand there. Um, it simply means that it's a different kind of science. It may be closer to biology or ecology than it is to, say, engineering or Newtonian physics. Yes. And, of course, if you come from a, a world where your status derives from your ability to deliver a single, confident, right answer with no ambiguity, then the marketing field must seem... Uh, incredibly complicated. I mean, incredibly vague. And I don't. I don't think we've helped with our vocabulary. I have to say. Um, I'm intrigued. Of course, you're on the um, the front foot initiative of the Advertising Association. Uh, the aim of which is to is to raise the stature of marketing within organisations. 
one of one of the things I don't think we sell, and this is interesting when talking to an insurer, is we've made a mistake with marketing in that we always sell it on the benefits. I, I talked to someone in IT who said, weirdly, this guy who was an IT specialist had sat in on quite a few advertising presentations. And he said, your presentations are unbelievably good in terms of the slickness, the quality of the materials, the typography, the design. He said, but you make a terrible mistake, he said. You make the mistake of selling on the positives, not on the risk of a negative. They said, in IT, we'd never do that. We'd never go in and say, if you do this, it will be good. We'd always go in and say, if you don't do this, you're risking catastrophe. And I think one of the things we fail to sell on marketing is the extraordinary risk of not having a marketing mindset present in the room to say, are you sure it really works like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, just come in there. So I, I mean, I think that's, the, the new role I've got in the last eight months or so uh, sitting on the, the exec is the first time that marketing and digital have actually been directly representative at the, at the executive table. Um, so, so some of the things we've been able to do have been despite that. And so hopefully there's even more to come now that there's that direct representation. But you made, you made a really good point about the search for certainty. Um, and, and I've got a slightly different perspective on this one, which is that uh, it's the film with, uh, with Mars, with Matt Damon, isn't it, where he says, we need to science the out of this so so we go heavy on science but with a with an important but which is of a fundamental belief that great marketing teams are whole-brained not in any one individual because we all have our specialisms which is why I'm really passionate supporter of driving advocacy and awareness around neurodiversity so dyslexia dyspraxia autism ADHD etc but it's it's whole brain marketing functions because then what you can do is do all that science stuff and in, in, in in my mind that buys you the latitude to do the inexplicable stuff because you can say to a CFO, well, you know, it's, it's the, it's the same team from the same thinking using the same tools. Um, and you know, it might sound odd to put a dog on a skateboard, which is our new Churchill advertising. Um, but it comes from the same disciplines. And so I think, you, you know, it's almost like over explain and over science those bits that you can to buy the space and the freedom to do the completely incongruous and the flight of fancy, because you've got the trust of that of key individuals that you've got the rational in mind at the same time. So, um, so it does it does come to back down to trust, and so that, hence the link to the advertising association. So I'm feeling very very privileged and proud to chair the front foot, which is the advertisers and media owners and publishers and so on uh, coming coming together to advocate for the advertising industry per se, on behalf of the, the Advertising Association. And it also funds Credos, who've done some fantastic research work under Karen Fraser in, in the recent years, really to put the industry on the best foot, um, reputationally and from an effectiveness point of view. And, and so there's been a lot of work done under Karen around the, the lack of trust in advertising. And I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile pausing on this to say that there's an existential risk for advertising in that as a medium it's never been less trusted, which is a problem because the whole role of advertising is for brands to use it to build trust. And so it's a huge issue that if we are eroding trust in the medium that we need to build trust, that, well, that isn't, that isn't going to end well. Uh, and and it, for sure, there's a general lack of trust, decline in trust in the world today. People you know, more fearful, less trusting in general. But for advertising, it's a particularly, a particularly big point. Uh, and, and so the work we've done is to understand exactly what those drivers of distrust are uh, and uh, very recently with the advertising association in Isbar, we've launched 
um, a, a sort of a, a, an MOT check that you can do on whether you're doing the right thing, particularly around bombardment. So this is about overexposure, wasting money with uh, massive repeat exposures. Um, so a, a health check, an MOT, some guidelines so that people can stop wasting money and stop eroding trust. Just, just as one example, one of the advertisers in the group, uh, when they went and did all the clever stuff to knit it all together, they were reaching a frequency of over 200. And, and, and surely, surely after you know, a reasonable number, that's just pure waste. Uh, and so this is one of the sort of the unseen poisons in the in the in the well at the moment is that uh, in a much more complicated media landscape, advertisers are chucking a load of money down the drain in not being able to control frequency in a cross platform basis, and 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 it's driving trust down, and that's everybody's problem. I think there's an interesting question. I mean, I'm I'm very impressed by the fact that both your your earlier campaign and your present campaign use extremely expensive celebrity properties. And I've long argued that the expense, now this doesn't necessarily mean financial expense, but the costliness or scarcity of the skills you use in producing communication contributes to a consumer's trust in it simply because, um, as beautifully put by a, a tech friend of mine, the reason car advertising partly works is that if it were a waste of time for me to test drive your car, it would be a waste of money for me to advertise it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, the very fact that you spend visibly, okay, the fact that your advertising is visibly costly in terms of skill, celebrity talent, media expense even, is a reason for a consumer to believe. And so the, the digital pursuit of efficiency in advertising may be actually at, at direct loggerheads with the pursuit of, of effectiveness. I think it's a really big point. And the reason being two things, that very cheap advertising isn't very trustworthy in the same way. And the second thing is that very targeted advertising, it's much easier to lie successfully to one person than it is to a crowd of a thousand. When you advertise in the open air, the risk of being called out is high, whereas it's very easy for con men to pick off dupes one at a time. And so this obsession with efficiency, the idea that we're essentially trying to optimise uh, the, the removal of wastage, completely ignores the possibility that it's the very inverted commas wastage that makes the advertising work in the first place. Yeah, and I think it's a really important point to discriminate between wastage in terms of, you know, your, your apps driving consumers insane, turning them off from advertising per se, making them get ad blockers and so on, because it's just repeat versus perceived wastage in terms of some of the sort of the, the, the bells and whistles of great advertising. And I think you make a really, really good point, Rory, that, that you know, it's kind of a, a brand that is shelling out for expensive properties is, is whether this is subliminal subconscious or not, but it's putting its money where its mouth is um, to, uh, to, you know, to demonstrate that it's trustworthy because otherwise you'd be chucking that money down the drain if it wasn't true. Um, so I think that's a, that's a, that's a cracking point. In, in, in our case, I would say, um, both have been incredibly good value for money. Uh, and um, we've been very, very happy from a commercial point of view. Pro probably I could say not, not nearly as expensive as some people might have thought. Um, but, but nonetheless, I think your point is true. Whether that's conscious or subconscious, I'm not sure. But it's a very big point. You know, you see big advertising and, and you have confidence in the confidence of the advertiser themselves. And to some extent, I mean, fame... We use the phrase reputable, which means when you dissect it, capable of being, of having its reputation judged. And fame, in a sense, is a vulnerability to shame. Yeah. 
And so, uh, particularly in a category like insurance, if you think about it, um, you know, where I think the consumer feels that deep down you could always wriggle out of any paying any claim by pointing out paragraph 407, section 3. Um, the extent to which actually the trust is dependent not really on the legalistic mechanism of insurance, but simply on reputational questions. I mean, during the coronavirus, it struck me very, very visibly that brands have cancelled their conferences much, much earlier than conference organisers have. Yeah. And the reason is, if you're Nestle and you're holding a marketing conference, the last thing you want is for uh, you know Nestle to be held responsible for a fresh outbreak of COVID-19. Okay. Whereas conference organisers, who are generally not very famous, in other words, people organising conferences who are purely conference organising businesses, are much, much eager to much more eager for the event to take place and that vulnerability to embarrassment comes from being you know visibly out there and of course you know it wouldn't be surprising if these processes were subliminal and subconscious because in evolutionary terms they would be very very important yeah you know knowing how to judge trustworthiness would be instinctive rather than conscious as i always say you know instincts can be inherited whereas conscious reasons have to be taught and so the really important stuff, knowing who to trust, would probably be placed on the motherboard of the brain rather than um, uh, rather than you know relying on um, cultural transmission, as it were. Yeah, I think that's. I think a lot of this is uh, you know trust is implicit. It's, it's you know you can't uh, pin it. It's it's, it's uh, yeah very hard to you know you can't just say trust me. But, but what what we have done with direct line is to make some of those proof points very vivid. So just as one example, uh, if you have a car crash uh, with any other insurer than Direct Line, it'll probably take you a couple of weeks to get your car back, which is a problem because that's quite a long time. But also it's the ambiguity of not knowing how long it's going to take. How many, how many weekends do I need to navigate through without a car? Will, I, will my hire car be any good? Will it be the same? Uh, will they take it away after a certain period? So it's you know it's a whole world of ambiguity and confusion. So our our proposition, which we've had for six years now, is that we, we will get it back to you uh, within seven days. Uh, we'll get you a taxi to wherever you need to get to, and we'll get you an equivalent hire car for as long as you need it. And for every day that we're late over seven days, we'll give you ten quid. Now that's not a huge amount of money in the in the scheme of things for many, but it's skin in the game. It's skin in the game and it's an insurer putting its money where its mouth is saying, we're going to do this, we'll, 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 we will be different, we'll be better, and we'll stand behind it by punishing ourselves where we don't live up to our own expectations. And I think that changes the currency of trustworthiness um, in, a, in, a, in a transformational way. And now we have, over the last six, seven years, we've launched any number of propositions that are breaking those really key pain points for consumers as relates to insurance. And I think that's also sort of slightly unseen part of the success of the direct line magic. By the way, I mean, I, I, I might just mention your, your campaign for neurodiversity, which fascinates me because marketing emphatically needs to be more neurodiverse, I think, than it was perhaps 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, simply because, as you said, the hive brain that constitutes the marketing department requires a much wider range of complementary skills. I also think there's something very interesting in that, um, for, in that quite often um, it's the opposite to what you expect. So people who are, for example, slightly on the spectrum tend to be very good social scientists. And that sounds like a very strange thing to say. But interestingly, 
those people, if you're suffering from same, you know, suffering is the wrong word, but if you have mild Asperger's, if you're, if you're neuro non-typical, what you tend to do is things that are instinctive and unthought of to other people, you have to work out for yourself. Yeah. And that can make you much better at understanding the psychological processes. Um, that, so I always think there's that value in, in neurodiversity and marketing, which is if you're completely, it's rather like fish don't notice water. Okay, <laughs> they have no real conception of it because, whereas if you have if you have anybody who's slight, you know, again, what you might call, you know, you're non-typical to any degree in in any direction. By the way, um, you have that essential benefit of a, a, a different frame of view, a different viewpoint, yep. which is to some extent the raw material on which marketing thrives. So you know, I'm I'm always very interested in this. And the question where I think that um, ad agencies are very, very, you know, are very, very in danger of becoming incredibly homogeneous yeah. in terms of the type of person they attract. Well, I I think I so I've been a, a passionate advocate of neurodiversity for about nine or ten years. My, my daughter was diagnosed with dyslexia at the age of eight, and that spiked my curiosity because I sort of saw the good, bad, and ugly, and the the fact that many neurodiverse people focus on the things that they're not good at relative to others and lose sight of the things that they're brilliant at relative to others. So this is about superpowers, hidden superpowers, um, which is an interesting twist on the whole talent conversation. I've talked about whole brain uh, before. I mean, interestingly, there's a great metaphor to bees here. I I didn't know this until I dug a bit deeper, but apparently in bee colonies, 80 to 90% of the bees do exactly what they're told every single day, execute the plan, militaristic, um, you know, just do what they're told. And the other 10 or 20% of bees basically just have a bit of a laugh and they, they know, muck absolutely. about. And I, the, the interesting thing is I think it's a trade-off between exploit and explore. Yes, exactly. Which is you have to spend a reasonable amount of resources exploiting what you already know. Obey the waggle dance, pollen's over there, good source of nectar in that field, three miles to the northwest. Yep. But if you become over-dependent on what you already know, you get trapped in a local maximum. Exactly. And so I think that's why... Um, my, my curiosity was evoked because, again, in terms of high-performing teams, I thought this was a completely unexplored paradigm. And so we uh, aim to be quite progressive in the space. Um, actually, it was great to be featured by the BBC a couple of weeks ago for some of the workplace adjustments that we make for uh, for people with dyslexia, uh, particularly, or neurodiversity more generally, actually. Uh, and and uh, I think um, when if you were to put direct line neurodiversity or direct line autism into Google, it, it would show up really well because we've been on the front foot I think that's what sensible people with neurodiversity would do to see if it's an employer that really gets it and is going to be supportive. So we think there's competitive advantage in this. Um, and I'm happy to sort of say that out loud because I think it's quite hard to engineer for and takes time. So we wouldn't just be chucking away some secret source in an instant. But I think it's really, really intriguing and it's very much the underrepresented uh, part of the diversity and inclusion conversation because it's it's invisible. But also, again, many neurodiverse people struggle to self-advocate in a way that other interest groups within the DNI conversation do. So the case for dyslexia, um, I think Malcolm Gladwell writes about it recently, they're enormously overrepresented in entrepreneurial fields. Yeah. Um, I was talking to someone who said that I think it, you know, at the period of their greatest success, two thirds of the board of Tesco were dyslexic. Wow. Which is which when you think when you look at it from a statistical point of view is, is a highly significant finding. 
Yeah, I, and um, so there's many, many cases. So there's the obvious ones like the Steve Jobs and the, the Bill Gates. Uh, but um, I, I know I know two CEOs who will say categorically their success is because of their dyslexia, not despite it. And I think it's that self-acceptance because there, there are strong linkages to issues around self-esteem. But if you can get into that self-acceptance space, then there is absolutely gold there. And there's, there's something to be said here, which is a huge problem around our education system, which is instead of our education system looking for comparative advantage, there are two exceptions, music and sport, okay? So if you're brilliant at sport or you're brilliant at music, the education system will say, okay, you're a special case, here's, you know, here's a music school, here, you know, here's a sports scholarship. But around the cognitive, the obsession with comparison and fair comparison forces everybody to be judged on exactly the same criteria, which is exactly not what you want in a business. The last thing you want in a business is a lot of people who've all proven successful against the same criteria. What you want is a bunch of people with entirely complementary talents. Yeah, it is that complementarity. Uh, so there's a, a lovely anecdote. Actually, in fact, there's a video. Ray Quinn interviews Steven Spielberg, and Steven Spielberg talks about his education. He said it was a disaster. He hated it. His, his living nightmare was having to stand up and read out in front of the rest of the class. And this is somebody obviously who's gone to do all the things they've done. But the way he describes it, he says, well, you know, in the end, I found a way to dance between the raindrops. And I just thought that that there is it. That is it. only somebody who thinks in that, slightly different way could come up with that phrase to describe a living nightmare in that way i found a way to dance between the raindrops so it is that difference of thinking which is the value add and um if ultimately if diversity inclusion the premise for it is part social justice part performance you have to believe in both to really get passionate about it then the performance space is based on diversity of thought so why wouldn't you go to the people whose brains are wired differently rather than just through maybe um, you know, ex- you know, different experience, they have different levels of thinking. So I, I think, again, this is this unexplored, you know, fantastic source, source of talent that we're only just starting to understand. Yeah, and our education system is entirely militating against the discovery of these people by essentially forcing people into the wrong shape, you know, the, the pegs into inappropriate holes, because the education system is really only one hole. Yeah, And I think, um, you know, I think business needs to actually become active in this because arguing that the great thing about, you know, capitalism is that there are, you know, generally, if you what we what we want is not people who are conventionally good. We want people who are great at things that the rest of us are crap at. You know, that's why we have businesses. Otherwise, we'd all be independent consultants, you know. Indeed. You know, if it didn't work like that, I wouldn't be at Ogilvy. I'd be sitting at home doing my thing. The reason I'm in a company is because I need people to basically paper over my enormous cracks, you know. And, um, uh, the, um, and I think the same thing, you know, I think the same thing applies. And I, I, think the edu- I think it'd be great if business could actually go to the education system and say, is there a different way in which you can actually scout for talent where you look for complementarity rather than conformity? Yeah, complementarity is, is, um, is the key. Uh, my... I suppose my other metaphor is I owe an awful lot to rugby. Rugby was my sport. I played uh, for many years and was captain of a few teams and um, to a reasonably high level. And of course there, you know, there's the cliche about the forwards and the backs, but, but ultimately it's, it is true other than the Orcs playing international rugby, you know, they're all massive people at, at a normal level. Rugby is about the complementarity of people fulfilling different roles, bringing different things, 
the captain's role is to really create the environment for that harmony. And it's a completely different way of thinking that accepts that difference is positive rather than difference is negative. Yeah, and of course, you know, most people with an optimization mentality fail to see that because an optimizer would look at the bees and go, well, these 20% of bees, they need to be made redundant immediately, you know. Waste of time. Yeah, first to go. Total waste of time. <laughs> it's a very interesting question. I mean, I think that neurodiversity in boards, I mean, it worries me at the very least, you know, and not, there should be a, some sort of non-exec on a board who has a marketing mentality rather than a financial mentality. Yeah, well, we do. We're quite lucky. We've got a good mix, a very gender balanced mix for our non-exec board uh, and a few people who are notable marketers, Seb James, for example. Um, so there we probably do have the balance. But uh, I think that you're 100% right. The representation of the, the marketing mindset into many boards is probably a bit lacking and, and hence leads to the, the low tenure of CMOs and hence dot, 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 dot. Oh, that's fantastic. So what would you say has been your biggest achievement during your career to date? So, that, well, I mean, obviously the, the success we've had with Direct Line has, has been fantastic. You know, I mean, it's been a great ride and there's still more to come. Who'd have thought that you could sort of stay intrigued and curious and optimistic about a brand over a decade? Um, well, this has been a, a case in point. But, but I pro- probably would have to go a bit left field. And if I judge it anyway by the thing that my children are most proud of, it would actually be... Uh, the Sprintathon. So I probably need to say a little bit more to explain what the hell the Sprintathon is. So I had this mad idea to break the world marathon record. Um, and if you'd saw me, you'd think it was slightly odd that I have actually run five of the fastest 10 marathons in the world ever. Um, but of course, it's hacking the marathon. This is 422 people, each sprinting 100 meters uh, to indeed break the world marathon, all on behalf of Stand Up to Cancer. So this is beating cancer faster. And it was just sort of an idle, idle, crazy idea a few years ago. It's a glorious idea. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's it's beautifully simple in the end. I mean, it's it's actually sort of quite a Swiss clock uh, sort of effect to get this working around a, a four hundred meter track. But so so far, it's raised about just under four hundred thousand pounds, and there are about um, well, I don't know, probably a couple of thousand people who can cheekily and smugly say that they well, Nike couldn't break the two hour marathon, but I did. Brackets talk quietly. Well. 100 metres of it, of it, obviously. Um, but it, it turns out it's a great, um, for corporates and for communities, um, sort of a mass fundraiser where that small contribution of 100 metres um, can make a big difference uh, in, in, in very real terms. And, and, and because it was, I think it's the only original idea I've ever had, um, I was actually crushed a few years later that somebody had tried something slightly similar somewhere else in the world. But, but nonetheless, in my own mind, it was my, my one unique original idea. There was the famous woman who cheated the Boston Marathon, wasn't there, by simply appearing something like <laughs> 800 metres from the end. Yeah, that's it. So this, this, this one uh, is, is a hack, but a, I think a, a fully legitimate one. It's not a cheat, it, no, it's a hack, I agree. In, in truth, it's, um, we still haven't quite yet got that world record because of you know, video evidence for Guinness or dropping the baton. But this year, the next attempt is with um, is the advertising industry in the UK, actually. So working with Campaign, the idea is that uh, advertising industries, publishers, media owners can enter a lap team of four. Uh, and so it's who's the fastest in Adland. We did it last year at the Olympic Stadium, raised £100,000, again doing it this year. But the world record, and this is, a, this is a hack for everybody, if you want a world record, do X, but in fancy dress. So this year, in uh, mid uh, end of July, coronavirus willing, 100-odd uh, advertising agencies, I think Ogilvy were there last year, 
um, to reassure. We'll, we'll all be running in fancy dress, but the theme is great advertising. So you can imagine it's going to be, it could be um, uh, Milk Tray Man or 118118 or Tango Man, but each team has to run in the fancy dress of a great advert advertising campaign. And collectively, we're looking to break that, that world record finally. Um, it's, it's a little bit easier by the fact that we'll be setting a new record because it's the first time that anybody's done a sprint marathon relay in fancy dress. So there you go. Look out for that later in the year. Coronavirus willing. We'll have to get four Ogilvy people in Hathaway shirts to turn up. This will be fantastic. Ah, yes. <laughs> Indeed. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic, as I expected. Thank you enormously, Mark. Marketer extraordinaire. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of uh, On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. Uh, for more information on powering your business growth, visit the website alfinsight.com. Uh, the series is produced and, if I may say so, very expertly and edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then give us a like. Thank you very much for listening. This is Rory Sutherland, here for you next time. Remote working isn't the future, it's already here. But staying well connected to your co-workers is essential. Wherever you're working, you can all now have a virtual seat at the table with the award-winning Meeting Owl. Their 360-degree smart video conferencing camera recognises and focuses on any speaker with exceptional audio and video. Join Owl Labs in bringing teams together for better work at owllabs.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.